Casey Ezell and Griffin Barber are the co-authors of Second Chance Angel, a sci-fi noir thriller. After meeting at LibertyCon circa 2016, today's guests quickly bonded over their shared backgrounds and mutual interests in dark humor and noir fiction. In fact, both willingly attribute their successes thus far to attending and networking at professional conventions. Casey is an active-duty U.S. Air Force helicopter pilot and two-time Dragon Award finalist. Meanwhile, Griffin is an active-duty police officer and best known for short stories and collaboration with Eric Flint on the novel 1636, Mission to the Mughals. To learn more about their journeys and successes with traditional publishing, be sure to check out today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher of choice. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon offerings. We've got some good ones for you. Thanks so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. Enjoy today's interview. Casey Azell and Griffin Barber, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Hi, thanks for having us. So... This is my first time, I know listeners will be excited, that I have two guests at once, and you are collaborators right now. Um, Casey, I wonder if you could go first, on just for people who don't know who you are, what you'd like to share about yourself. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, my name is Casey Ezell. Uh, I am a uh, writer of science fiction, fantasy, horror, um, mystery, noir, a uh, little bit of romance, um, uh, some alternate history, basically whatever catches my interest in, in any particular juncture. Um, I described myself once to one of my publishers as a genre fluid, um, and I, I kind of like that. <laughs> nice. Kind of like that label. Um, but uh, in addition to writing, um, uh, I am also a uh, full-time active duty officer in the United States Air Force and um, currently stationed overseas in Japan with my family. Um, and so when I'm not writing, I'm uh, usually flying or um, working in support of flying or exploring Japan. That's, mm. that's, that's been my life lately. <laughs> wow. All over the place, literally and yeah. figuratively. And Griffin, what about you? So I've, uh, I'm, I'm also genre fluid, uh, and uh, I'm, I uh, have been published with uh, uh, short stories. I also write uh, uh, or have written for games companies, uh, mm -hmm. most recently for uh, uh, Roberts uh, Space Industries, the uh, um, Citizen 
Star Citizen game. I oh, wrote okay. for them several years back when they first were, uh, you know, kickstarted for the record uh, uh, amount of money. Right. Uh, hopefully that game will someday come out. But uh, there's a free novella of mine that's out for everybody to read uh, called A Separate Law. Um, okay. But I, uh, I also wrote for uh, pen and paper role-playing games, Twilight 2013, a short-lived version of a, a very old property, mm-hmm. Twilight 2000. Um, and, uh, yeah, I write all sorts of stuff. My day jobbery is uh, uh, as a police officer in a major metropolitan area in Northern California. Okay. And you're still also active. Yeah. I've been doing that for 20 years. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm currently, uh, on the uh, injury list as I uh, blew up my back and, uh, have had to have surgery on it. So I'm, I'm trying to recover from that mm-hmm. and uh, get back in the swing of things, uh, hopefully to do a couple more years and then, uh, go on out to retirement and, uh, write in full time. Wow. Okay. So, one thing I noticed, you know, you seem to like working together. Maybe that's because you're both genre fluid or maybe that's because you have, you know, the shared background of being actively in service right now. And I imagine with your experiences over these past 20 years for both of you, you get this incredible cross section of humanity that you're exposed to. And you get to be inside these systems that are complex, right? And I, I, I was noticing reading uh, the short story anthology, Noir Fatal, you know, a lot of that comes through. And... Yeah, it, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that's one of the things that, um, so Griffin and I, we were friends before we were um, collaborators or co-authors. And uh, I think that that's one of the reasons why um, we connected, uh, you know, as as friends when we were introduced at um, Liberty Con, and I think we decided it was in 2018. Was that right, Griff? Um, it was but, actually earlier than that. It was yeah. it was further back, further back. I was going to say it, it. felt like it was earlier than that, but it's, um, I think it was 16 or or because it was before Noir Fatal. You right. approached Tony with that idea, so right. It would have right. been 16, I think, maybe 16 or or 15, even. Maybe, yeah, maybe even fifteen, actually. Um, but anyway, it's couple, you know, a couple years ago now, um, and uh, and yeah, that was. Um, I think the things that you mentioned, Ethan, are, are some of the reasons why Griffin and I connected. But you know, we people in, uh, you know, in in military service or in law enforcement or um, you know other first responder career fields, paramedics, um, medical personnel, like <laughs> we 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 tend to develop a lot of times, and this is a generalization, so obviously Mm. it doesn't apply in every case, but we tend to develop, um, you know, kind of a dark sense of humor. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's really, it's a coping mechanism, right? When you see, um, and deal with, uh, like you said, incredibly complex systems and incredibly, you know, the incredible complexities of, of humanity and the human condition, um, and, you know, and the extremes of the human experience. Mm. Um, dark humor is is really one of the best coping mechanisms out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when, when when Griffin and I can, you know, uh, when we first met, and uh, and I, I think there was a realization moment. Certainly for me, there was that like, all right, this is somebody who's going to find the same things that, you know, funny that I think are funny, but mm. you know, not necessarily like appropriate for mainstream humor you know what i mean just like oh that looks like it hurt but it was also really funny for me to watch you know like that, that kind of humor yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um 
So, uh, and, and I think that the, you know, when you find that, that kind of simpatico vibe, um, hmm. it's easy to create a friendship. And then, you know, when you have compatible passions like writing and, uh, and the genres in which, in which we both enjoy writing, hmm. um, you know, it's, it's natural to have a, a, if, if you have the inclination to write with other people at all, I think it's natural for a partnership to grow out of that. Yeah. And we did, uh, we, you know, we, uh, the convention scene was a good way to, to, to meet new people that inspire you in any case mm. uh, and might inspire characters, et cetera, but also uh, to network and uh, develop your uh, field of, of possibility for uh, invitations to anthologies and uh, all that kind of thing. And it's yeah. just icing on the cake when the people that you're meeting are just cool cats that, uh, that you can hang out with and, and share a language with without having to stretch too far right Uh, absolutely so that was one of the things that's really neat about liberty con is uh it's a convention down in uh chattanooga tennessee it's been going on for i don't even know it's 30 years 40 years yeah um Mm. and so it's multi-generational and and very open and accessible to to everybody and very inviting of pros um, so you get a chance to meet a lot of the different people uh, that uh, from all walks of, of the uh, SF and fantasy uh, spectrum, as well as, uh, honest to God, leading scientists in their fields um, and that kind of stuff. So it was really neat. And uh, Casey was, you know, was a, a, a pilot uh, and uh, a serving officer, hmm. um, which, you know, I, I've met a few, but I hadn't uh, had a chance to talk to too many for very long. So it's always good to have those, uh, uh, those contacts that you can reach out to and, and invite to give you instruction on mm-hmm. how to write a certain scene or uh, that kind of thing with as much uh, truth as possible. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's kind of funny because within, you know, within the circle of, of so Griffin and I both um, have, have written for uh, Bane books and have published novels and short stories with Bane books. Um, and so, we, you know, within the Bane circle, um, it, one of the things that's amusing to me is Griffin and I both have reputations as, you know, Okay, if you have a if you have a story and you have a cop question, you know you have a law enforcement question in the story. Mm. You you know email Griffin Barber. Here's his address. If you have a, a helicopter question, because um you know that's what I fly is uh, I fly UH one helicopters. If you have a helicopter question or a rotary wing question, email Casey Ezel. Here's her here's her email address. <laughs> so so we we're both known as as you know the uh, the the consultation sources you know within the uh, within the family of writers for, for those purposes. I guess it's a great way to make or keep connections too with people you meet. Well, yeah, it, it certainly is. You know, when, uh, when I was doing Moi Fatale, um, uh, one of the writers that, um, you know, wrote uh, just a f- fantastic story um, and, and co- contributed was uh, Bob Butner, um, mm. who is, um, you know, real well known in um, military science fiction circles. And, you know, I've I've long been an admirer of his work, um, and he had he had contacted me because he had a question about uh, rotary wing, uh, specifically tilt rotors, which are not exactly the same as helicopters, but you know there's there's a, a relationship there. Um, and I had I had helped him with some research, and so when I was looking for um, you know, looking to invite authors to participate in this in this Moi Fatale project that I did for Bain, um, 
I was able to, to reach out to him and say, you know, hey, Bob, remember when I helped you with this thing? How would you like to write a story for me? You know, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> And it worked out great. He, he wrote a just an absolutely stunning, beautiful story that, um, you know, it, is one of the most commented on in the volume because it's um, it, it's noir in a very unexpected way, which is kind of cool. So. Mm. Mm. And he, uh, I, I, I too have helped out uh, Bob with different uh, aspects of, of uh, his uh, research into near future stuff uh, from the law enforcement angle. And he's really a great guy. Oh, but yeah, it's the, it's the those connections that you make first off because they're again they're good people that you want to help out uh, and. Uh, that you get invited into that process by them is a big deal. Um, right. And to, to be uh, able to carry that forward and, and help them out and then have them possibly help you out in, in the future instances and that kind of thing is, is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so we both have this reputation of being open and, and clear about the fact that we have this expertise and we're willing to help you out. Uh, you know, so long as you approach us respectfully and, and right. in, this, in, a, in an attitude of mutual respect, uh, we'll help you out, you know, with any number of the subjects that we're, um, we're conversant in. Right. And, uh, you know, because Casey's also a mom uh, and an officer, a female officer and a, a male predominated, predominated, dominated field (laughs) and um has you know lots of experience with all of that she's also been in combat um uh, i have been in personal combat but never in an actual engagement you know military um and so we we have these different fields that we can call on uh to lend our experience to other authors and to lend our experience to our own writing uh, and informing our own writing. So. Mm. Now, do you find that cathartic or can that, like, do you have to work through stuff, maybe get support? Because, you know, Casey, I was just reading your story and, you know, you're one, I love this tangential, but I love how you flip, you know, to the point of view of the woman walking into the detective's office rather oh, than it being the detective. And that speaks to what Griffin was mentioning there, but also, I noticed the sensitivity, right, to, you know, she's pressing into somebody's worst day experiences, right? And Yeah. And so when you open yourself up to consulting, right, I imagine that some of these questions come up, right? Um, get there. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. You know, I, I've, I've, never, I've never had anyone ask questions, you know, in... in for research for their stories. I've never had anyone make me uncomfortable with the Mm. questions that I've asked, you know, that they've asked me. Um, And um, I think that, you know, everyone that I have worked with has, has always been, been super respectful, you know, of, of, you know, like Griffin said, you know, we're, they don't approach us as, you know, like, peons or anything like that. Everybody's very, everybody's very, it's very much an attitude of, you know, hey, hey, you have, you're a subject matter expert on this one thing. And, you know, I, I have a need for that information. And, and could you help me? You know, they don't, um, lean, they don't lean on you on the couch and say, sorry, I need to talk about your worst day. And right. This no, on. yeah, it's, it's never anything like that. Um, and thankfully. Um, and, uh, <laughs> well, it's some of that might just be, you know, I've, I, um, 
neither Griffin nor I is exactly a, a shrinking violet, you know, and so uh -huh. I, I think that we're, we're both fairly able to, you know, set and enforce our own boundaries in terms of like, hey, this is not something that I want to talk about with mm. you right now. Um, but I, I'm, you know, speaking for myself, I've never had anyone even approach that boundary when they're talking, you know, when they're asking questions about, um, uh, you, you know, for research purposes. In fact, I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, so uh, one of the experiences that it isn't even really truly my experience, it's um, my husband was also in the Air Force and he was, uh, he was injured uh, on his last deployment to Iraq um, back in 2006. Um, uh, he was shot and he uh, lost his eye um, mm. and went through the whole wounded warrior process and everything. He's, he's since recovered, he's, he's fine. Um, but uh, I have spoken, uh, in fact, I, I even did a, I was asked to do a panel on uh, traumatic brain injury at same convention, different year, but same convention, Liberty Con. Mm. Um, and and um, to give my experiences as a family member um, and of someone who suffered a traumatic brain injury and kind of what that was like going through that process with him, and you know those are those are things that are pretty you know they're they're very personal experiences you know I'm talking about helping you know my my husband the man I love more than more than more than any other on this planet you know mm -hmm. um, uh, going through you know the the process of of recovering from a, a grievous wound and um, uh, that was one of the best panel experiences I ever had mm. in part because everyone was very respectful and very like um, um, what's the word receptive, I guess, to, um, to me really kind of getting a little bit vulnerable and, and, mm -hmm. and being very honest about, Hey, this is, this is what we went through. You know, this is what I went through as, as the, the support person, the spouse, this is what my husband went through. And, um, and, you know, here's, here's what we did and how we made it through, through all these experiences and stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, uh, um, I, I think for the most part, people are, people recognize and respect when you're, when you allow that openness and when you allow that vulnerability. Right. I'm glad you mentioned those words, openness and vulnerability, because, you know, on the job and any, whether it's, I imagine military or private bureaucracy or whatever, like vulnerability is not always a trait that's something you get to do on the job and when you're at home with family, right? Sometimes you're just in a hurry, right? And trying to right. integrate. So I imagine that's a special experience to be able to hang out with your tribe and and share. Yeah, yeah, for sure it is, for sure it is. And uh, I mean, on a number of levels, right? Not just, you know, not just like the, the super deep stuff, like, you know, life-changing injuries and right. <laughs> things no, like yeah. that. But, you know, it's... Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the, going back to what Griffin was talking about is in terms of like the convention circuit, um, you know, it serves multiple purposes. It's, it's the, the best networking tool that I've experienced in yeah. my writing career, but it's also a, a recharging yeah. experience for me, uh, because it's, you know, I go and I get to hang out with my tribe and, um, you know, sit and tell stupid jokes about dolphins late into the night, <laughs> you know, hanging out with my friend Griffin, you know, so. Wait a minute, there, there are stupid dolphin jokes and when's the anthology coming? <laughs> I, I don't think we can do that with, I don't think any publisher today would, would touch that with a 10 foot 
your 10 foot pole. I don't think they would even do that. <laughs> is that a pun? <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe was, somebody in a... the military sci fi field might risk it. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be groundbreaking. It would be that is a good word for it. <laughs> so for sure. I'm I'm pretty good at I'm pretty good at career limiting moves as far as advice goes. So just take that with a grain of salt. I've pretty much made um, myself unemployable at this point. So but the, the the aspect of it that that uh you know dredging stuff up or bringing stuff up that you know, is, is it's both helpful and it's uh, something you got to kind of watch out for, mm. um, you know, in, in describing most people have not uh, in this current era been in personal combat. They have not uh, smelled the smell of the unwashed opponent mm. uh, as they were fighting with them uh, and that kind of stuff. I have. Uh, so when, when talking about one of the things that one of the things I talk about in writing generally is, you know, uh, going from that personal experience uh, and uh, how uh, smell is a huge um, a proponent of memory. Uh, it's a trigger for memory. And uh, if you can, uh, you know, drop some smells into your writing, you can get a long way. But having to, when you go to discuss this with somebody, the specifics of, you know, what does that smell like, that kind of thing, it is. Uh, it does bring up some some uh, memories that you you know may be painful or uh, mm. have yet to be fully processed. Right. So yeah, I can see what you mean about just you know it, yes, there are some aspects of it that are dredging up, but you know nothing gets resolved better than stuff that's been dredged up and into the light. Right. Uh, well, and I, you know, I, part of why I was asking are a couple of reasons, but one was. You know, you're both writing and, you you know, you mentioned dark humor as a coping mechanism, but I imagine, you know, I wanted to ask, you know, Griffin, I kind of honed in on your bio about how you turn to writing stories, right, as a way, you know, to kind of tend to that soul of yours, right? Yeah. And, like, I, I don't want to put words in your mouths, but I would imagine that, like, you probably get to a lot of this stuff first in your own you're yeah, exploring yeah definitely um one of the things that you know and currently with all the uh um the law enforcement questions that are being brought up by everybody nationwide and constantly on social media mm. uh it is a challenge to uh, act re continue to react with reason and uh you know keep uh keep that pressure on on to uh I, I used to call it uh, Odwick Doe, only doing what you can do. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm only doing what I can do. This larger system may have its problems and may have its issues, but I am not going to be the one that, that, you know, kneels on somebody's neck. Mm -hmm. um, I'm only doing what I can do. And everything within my reach is going to be uh, held to that standard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the, the <laughs> uh, one of the sayings, I, I think somebody's political uh, stuff from the 90s was, you know, uh, think globally and act locally. Right. And, you know, that that is the the sine qua non, I think, of um, being uh, a part of a larger bureaucracy, uh, a larger structure than yourself, uh, is that, you know, so long as everybody's doing their damnedest to do the best. Mm. they can do uh then things should work a lot better 
Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we are in an age of uh, uh, minimizing uh, that in favor of maximizing impact of mm-hmm. um, uh, of a desired change, and uh, I think that it's uh, tr- it's troublesome. Yeah. Because you're, there's not a lot of room for nuance, and uh, there's so much need for nuance yeah. in, in our relations with everybody. Yeah, and you know, I relate to this having worked in private bureaucracy for you know a number of decades, and it feels like you're like you're, what you came to this idea that you can only do what you know, like you said, I can. I'm only doing what I can do, right? I'm, I'm guessing there was a journey behind getting to that acceptance for you, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the talk about defunding law enforcement and everything is, or my biggest concern is for domestic violence uh, mm-hmm. victims mm-hmm. and uh, child victims as well. But the, the most salient thing, the only thing that, you know, when we go into a house, uh, as law enforcement, and we take that bad actor out of the house. And yes, there's all sorts of problems with, you know, how that's done, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But there is breathing room and a chance for the victim and the the suspect to, you know, to use a harsh term, get their shit together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or on the suspect side, because the suspect is now alerted to the fact that, hey, you can't do this. Right. Um, you know, and and not told by their victim. They're told by the the wider people of the community through the actions of the police officer. Yeah, yeah. And that that's going to be um, it's going to be a challenge to do with social workers or whatever plan they have to do, to try and do it with um, uh, with a defund police kind of movement stuff going on. Yeah, and but know, yeah, I'm the, the, sorry. Go ahead. No, the just, aspect of it. I get this topic is like one that I think we need to talk about more. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the aspect of that regarding, uh, you know, going into the writing is, is that you, uh, you can observe problematic behavior from all sides or mm-hmm. everything, everywhere in something, mm-hmm. and yet continue to do what you can do to fix it. Um, and that is, a, I think, the, also the largest or most favorable feature of noir fiction for me is that often, you know, it's a shitty world and you're caught in between the millstone of the, the bureaucracy and the criminal element, and yet the hero continues to struggle onwards and doesn't, isn't necessarily guaranteed of a victory at the end of that. Mm-hmm. of the story but uh you know and that's something in law enforcement everything is a qualified victory right you know somebody loses when we take action it's pretty much guaranteed that somebody's going to going to lose something uh because we're not running into the fires uh, you know like the the firemen we we joke about them calling them heroes because mm. everybody likes the firemen Currently, they used to in the 19th century kind of have a hate on for them because they would steal everybody blind when they were fighting the fire. But <laughs> that's not the case anymore. Um, but they, that aspect of it, the, that aspect of uh, qualified victory, yeah. is something that I am, uh, you know, intrinsically familiar with from my 20 years in law enforcement. Yeah, and that's something you know, like 
I'm going to say this with my tongue partially in cheek, but like a lot of people don't have the quote unquote benefit of being in a bureaucracy for 20 years to learn what <laughs> that nuance looks like. And so I imagine when we're hearing people clamor for change and how a change should be, right? We're hearing from a lot of people who in some way have benefited or not from <laughs> being in that system or not, right? And maybe writing you know, you caring enough about this idea of qualified victory to write about that as a way to bring people inside and and see that. I think it's a new process of what I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, and process what you um, a coping mechanism, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know I've I know from prior experience that I'm a lot happier when I'm writing. Mm. So. Are you still writing with the surgery and everything recovery? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I um, as much as possible, I uh, stand now when I'm writing and, and uh, you know, kind of maneuver around that kind of thing. So hmm. um, one of the reasons why I'm happy this is audio only is so that I can actually get up and walk around a little bit because the video ones are pretty painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you're, you're comfortable. <laughs> uh, so... so I, one of the questions this is a personal question for me, and maybe it's because it's something that I sometimes struggle with, is I learned how to write novels. And every once in a while, the opportunity comes up to write for an anthology. And I'm not always guaranteed that what I'm going to write actually like, isn't more suited for, for another novel or series. I have a really hard time sometimes honing into what a short story is. So, like, what have you... How do, how do you, have you learned anything about from the outset scoping out a short story when you have a call for a turnaround on something like that? The one thing that I got, the, the, first off, don't let any opportunity pass you by. Mm. You know, if you can do it, do it. You know, and again, it's it's doing it within the framework of getting your best result. You want to have, right. you, you do want to have a, a a real good story, mm. <laughs> um, you know, a complete story. But uh, I can't remember if it was Zelazny or or somebody said that the a short story is the last chapter of a great novel. Mm. Um, and that for me, I think it was Zelazny. I'm not sure, Casey. You remember? I, you I'm that? not familiar with that quote, but it's a good one. Yeah, and and so it it it's it is really if you approach it from that aspect, like here, I've got this really cool story idea. What do, what am I going to do to punch up that last uh, chapter of my novel? And now, okay, well, can I tell this as just the last chapter? Uh, can I tell it as a short story? Um, so I. Uh, I, I really dig that, and I, I I came to it from so a little history here. Chuck Gannon is what I call the rainmaker. He has given me pretty much every opportunity that, I, that I've had up until uh, writing with Casey, hmm. um, and even had a hand there because he introduced me us to uh, a, a, an agent from his agency. So. Uh, big deal. So anyway, he he uh, at World Fantasy about 12, 11, 12 years ago. Uh, he uh, we were introduced. We hung out at the bar. We had uh, a few yucks uh, and uh, really enjoyed each other's company. And, and uh, the next morning, he came and said, "Hey, I read your blog, and I think you really, really need to write for the Grantville Gazette." 
Mm. Uh, which is a 1632 short story uh, kind of uh, uh, magazine that comes out every couple months. Right. That's Eric Flint. Yep. And so he, uh, I, I was like, yeah, time travel, poo, you know, and I write novels and I've got this novel I'm trying to sell. And, you know, man. So the next year he quite gently asked, so how's that going for you? <laughs> and I said, uh, give me the info so I can, you know, get it on, on a 1632. And, um, unlike most of my peers and, and most of the horror stories I've heard, the very first short story I ever completed and submitted was published. Um, so I, I kind of, when people start talking about how they, you know, how many submissions they had, et cetera. Now that's not the truth for my novel, which I was trying to shop at the time that I met Chuck and etc. I got some really bad <laughs> uh, feedback from, from on that and it's currently trunked and will remain so <laughs> in a grave until it's burned at the stake. Does it but, have like an uh, amulet to retrieve or <laughs> <laughs> right. So we we uh um and that, again that's a, that's illustrative of what Casey and I were talking about. At a con, uh meet somebody, hang out with them, you know, just uh, befriend them, be be cool. Uh, and he, you know, tells me about this opportunity. I poo poo it, but then I come around later on and, and, you know, take that opportunity and it becomes, uh, you know, eventually becomes a novel with Eric Flint, uh, mm -hmm. and another novel with Eric Flint, which is coming out in May, uh, 1637, mm -hmm. the sequel to Mission to the Mughals is called the Peacock Throne. Um, and it's coming out in May from Bain Books. And, uh, you know, going to these conventions is a real useful thing. And, when those opportunities arise, and I'm sure Casey will, will tell you, and the same thing with Casey, because, uh, you know, hanging out with her and talking noir is how we got, how I got uh, the invite to Noir Fatale that you're reading. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so. Yeah, the, sure. The, that, please. Uh, well, um, well, which part? About conventions or about Noir Fatale? Well, I guess <laughs> for you, it would be. Maybe it culminates with Noir Fatale, but I imagine you had some lessons up to that, right? In terms of like how uh, you'd even get, how you, yeah, and how you, that, and how you'd even get into position to pitch something like an anthology that you could run with. So I, again, it, it, um, it really was a, a question of networking and connections and, um, you know, leveraging friendships in a, in a mm -hmm. way that, so when you say, okay, I loved, I leveraged my friendships, that sounds terrible and manipulative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but it's not really, um, not in this sense in, you know, it's because it's a, um, it, it's a respectful outgrowth, I guess, you know, a, a leveraging that respects the relationship. Um, so rising tide raises all boats. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, like Griffin, I can directly trace every opportunity that I've ever had in my writing career directly to attendance at a convention. And mm. that's, you know, full stop. That's there's, had I not been attending conventions, I would never have had the opportunity to, uh, uh, write my first, um, published work, which was actually, uh, speculative poetry. I would never have had the opportunity to, um, to write for my first anthology for Bain, um, which was, um, citizens, um, back in 2008, 
10, I guess. Um, I never, uh, you know, I never would have met the people that, um, you know, later I worked with on as collaborators and, and offered me novel contracts and various shared worlds and, and things like that. It's, it, it all comes down to the networking, um, that happens for me at conventions. Hmm. So, um, which, you know, your listeners right now might be thinking, well, shit, that kind of sucks because there's not really any conventions going on right now. (laughs) And that's true. It does suck. However, I, I, I insist on believing that, you know, that this is a temporary condition, uh, that we will be able to, uh, overcome these limitations, um, and, uh, and get to a point where we will be able to gather in numbers again and talk about writing and have conventions and celebrate fandom and, and speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, so just hang on there, <laughs> hang in there guys. It's, it's coming. Um, but as far as Noir Fatale, the way that that came about was, um, I had been, uh, writing and corresponding with a mutual friend of, of mine and Griffin's by the name of Chris Smith. And, um, I forget why, but for whatever reason, we started talking about noir fiction and I started reading on Chris's recommendation. I started reading Raymond Chandler and I fell so in love with Raymond Chandler, um, and, and the way that the man could turn a phrase. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, uh, wrote a noir story. Um, and it was the, it was an early version of the one that, that you just read in mm. Noir Fatale. Um, it was set in, in Washington, DC and Alexandria, Virginia. Um, which is, uh, I, I said it there because I, uh, kind of missed that area. I was living in Albuquerque at the time, but I, I'd lived in, in the DC area previously for a number of years. Um, and it was, it just seemed like a cool setting, right? Cause some of the hallmarks that I really keyed in on were, um, you know, this idea of location as almost a, another character in the story. Mm. Um, the idea that, um, you know, the, um, you know, the, the trope of the, um, the hard boiled detective who is probably a, a veteran of some kind, you know, if not a veteran, law enforcement officer, you know, a, a literal war veteran, uh, because a lot of noir fiction, of course, came out of the, you know, was a response to uh, the early wars of the 20th century, right? Mm. You know, the First and Second World War, um, and the and the large-scale industrial destruction <laughs> that mm. came with those events. Um, and uh, so, I, anyway, I wrote the story, and I loved it, and I was like, I got to find a home for this. Um, and, uh, you know, thought about shopping it around to some magazines and stuff. But what I really wanted to do was I really wanted it to come out in an anthology because um, I had just had a story accepted to uh, Black, the Black Tide Rising anthology edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole from, mm. uh, from Bain Books. And that was, you know, there was a lot of buzz about that. And I was really enjoying the process of being involved with that. And so I was like, man, I really wish Bain would do a noir anthology. Um, and then I could submit this story and it could get published and everyone could read it and love it and think of, think I was awesome. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, uh, <laughs> um, like maybe six months after that, um, on a totally different recommendation, um, I started reading Larry Korea's work first, the, uh, monster hunter work and mm-hmm. then the, um, grimoire series. And here again was this noir story, but you know, it was an urban fantasy noir but like kind of a past urban fantasy noir. And I just, I thought it was really cool. And I thought it was really cool the way that he combined the, the, you know, urban fantasy elements with, you know, the noir tropes to, to make one coherent whole that really fit well together in my opinion. Mm. Um, and so I was like, that's the guy I need to do an anthology. <laughs> so, um, uh, 
so uh, when I had the opportunity to meet Larry at um, a later, uh, you know, like maybe a year or so later, um, I, I actually, what I did was I, <laughs> I was kind of sneaky about it. I pitched to the, um, the programming uh, guy at, uh, at LibertyCon, the programming director. And I said, hey, I have this idea for a story or for a panel um, about noir, you know, noir fiction and in science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I know Larry Correa is coming as a guest this year. <laughs> he could be on the panel. I'll volunteer to moderate it. You know, we could invite a couple of other people. And um, I think it'll be a really interesting panel. And um, uh, Rich Grohler, the programming programming director was like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, go ahead. And just through sheer serendipity, um, Larry and I both were invited to a dinner, uh, that happened like immediately after that panel in the, um, in, you know, in schedule that like that part, I had no, that was, like I said, that was sheer serendipity, um, or, you know, divine intervention or however you want to think of it. Mm-hmm. So we went from this panel, which, which worked out really well. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we had some good attendance and some really good questions. Um, and then we went from that directly to this dinner and I had the opportunity to talk to Larry at the dinner when he was, you know, telling me, Hey, great job with the panel. Um, you know, uh, that was a lot of fun. I really love noir. And I was like, really, do you? Because I have this idea for an anthology and mm-hmm. I would love to work with you on it. And I would do all the work and we'll put your name on it and we'll sell it to all your fans and hopefully we'll make some money. And he <laughs> I'll was do like, all the okay, work. You'll make money. That sounds good. That's a good pitch, right? That's a great pitch. So, yeah, so. Voted capitalist, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I knew that because I'd done my homework. <laughs> but uh, um, so, uh, so that was, you know, he, he, agreed that you know it was a good idea let's put the idea in front of tony um tony weisskopf from from bain and mm-hmm. uh, um you know when we did uh about a year later uh when the schedule was a little bit more clear we pitched it to her and she was interested and so that's uh that's how noir fatale came about mm-hmm. kind of a long story but it was, it's kind of a funny one too and i think it really in- illustrates well how you can how like being at a con and you know volunteering at a con or mm-hmm. um you know, it's, it, it can provide you with those opportunities. Um, but you really got to be smart about how you do it because you don't want to be the person who walks into a con where a bunch of people are like relaxing and having fun and then strike up a work conversation. Yeah. Kind of got to, kind of got to let the moment come to you, I guess. Right. That makes sense. Kind of yeah. develop that vibe and connect. Exactly. Sounds like. Exactly. Read the room. Yeah. Reading read the room, room is, right. reading a room is essential for anybody for anything but certainly right. for conventions and networking you know, and, yeah yeah and re- yeah. reading the person you're going to be you think you want to approach right yeah. right and i don't think i don't think there's anything wrong with saying you know you know if you happen to find yourself in a conversation with someone to whom you want to pitch something mm-hmm. you say you know i'm really having a great time hanging out with you right now uh, you know, when it's convenient for you, I would love to talk to you about business stuff yeah. and, uh, and kind of leave it at that. Uh, I've, I've had some good success with that. Too, Great. So. so quick question then for both of you unrelated, because I get the central theme here that going to conventions has been just really essential. You said it over and over how, cause so, so you probably then go to a lot of conventions or you prioritize that with your free time. Have you noticed anything in common about what might be an ideal convention setting versus one that's maybe could be disappointing if you're looking for a professional experience? We, we kind of came from a different, came to, to conventions from a completely different angle. 
Uh, I initially uh, started going to conventions solely to uh, begin my writing career. Mm. Uh, and Casey was a fan and was going to the biggest uh, convention in the Southeast uh, long before she was writing or trying to, or submitting, I should say. She was always writing, but I think, right, Casey? Not- yep, yep. All of that's true. So uh, we, it's interesting that how we kind of came to this thing, but, uh, you know, some conventions are, are strictly uh, fan-based things where, you know, you're, there's a, a very strict dividing line between uh, the uh, creators and content creators and the, uh, the fans and fandom. Mm-hmm. And other conventions are a lot more fluid with that. Um, but like World Fantasy is a, a entirely professional one. Like every, everybody who's there is either a, uh, a writer or uh, editor or agent mm-hmm. or somehow involved in uh, the creating of, of science fiction and fantasy works. Um, so it's a very different beast than, say, Dragon Con, which is, uh, you know, for the fans. Mm. um so there's uh it's a different kind of vibe number one like everybody when i you know being in law enforcement there are a few fans of science fiction and fantasy but there are a lot more people that are like what like you're dressing up like a klingon (laughs) kind of (laughs) kind of stuff and when i was talking about going to world fantasy i'm like no not not really there's there's some people that actually do uh you know cosplay a little bit um but uh, the majority of it's a professional networking kind of convention. And I think there are a few other ones. But for me, it was World Fantasy that kind of kicked everything off that I started to, to meet folks and, and know folks. And uh, I think for Casey, it was Dragon, right? It was Dragon Con, yeah. yeah. So I, I think the, the answer to this question is it depends, right? It, it depends mm-hmm. on a couple of things. Number one, for, you know, for the prospective convention goer, Number one, who are you? What is your personality like? What, you know, what type of environment do you thrive in, and what type of experience are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, and two, really, is what I just said. You know, what is your goal with going to this convention? Right. Um, I started going to Dragon Con because it was a party, and I loved it, and I, I wanted to have a good time. And I still go to Dragon Con because it's like my Super Bowl slash Mardi Gras slash New Year's Eve slash. You know, it's it's. It is the one weekend a year where my husband and I forget that we are, you know, uh, in our in our late thirties and forties, respectively, and uh, and um, and we just push it up like we're teenagers again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so like, <laughs> um, we're not as good as we once were, but we're we're good. We're as good once that weekend as, as we ever were. I I, um, I got I got the Toby <laughs> Keith reference by the way. That's one of my favorite lines in the song. Yeah, um, but. Uh, um, but but that's that experience and that's you know i'm i'm an extrovert and that's the environment that i thrive in um Mm. and so if if what you want if you want to go to a convention strictly for the professional networking and for the opportunity to you know sit and talk with with other professionals in the business um and you know potentially do some pitching uh you know of projects or make contacts with agents or, or publishers or whatever um, there are conventions where you can do that. Um, it, I think the important thing is to do your research and figure out, you know, which one, which, which convention is going to give you the experience that you want and which convention is going to work well with who you are as a person. Um, for, you know, a, a, an acquaintance of mine, um, you know, 
she swears up and down that the only two conventions she'll ever go to are um, uh, Liberty Con because, you know, she's um, familiar with almost everyone who goes there. It's, you know, the joke is that Liberty Con is really like a family reunion at this point because, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of people who have been going to that convention for a number of years. Right. Like Griffin said, I think it's in its like 33rd year. Um, so it's, it's, that's you a know, sweet vibe it, though. It, yeah. It's yeah. Generations, it is. It's generations yeah. now. Yeah. It is. It, it, it really is. You know, people bring their kids and their kids grow up and get married there and bring their, you know, significant others and their kids. And so, yeah, it's, it is, it's a great con. It's a great vibe. And it does, it has a very family oriented atmosphere. Um, and it is very pro heavy, but it's, it's the convention that the pros go to, to get away from work. So, mm. you know, showing up at Liberty Con, yeah, you're going to get a lot of a lot of great connections, but you don't want to show up and immediately start pitching your stuff everywhere because, you know, it's kind of in bad taste because everyone's there to relax, you know? And so that's the kind of thing that I'm saying. Whereas, um, uh, another, the other convention that this, this acquaintance of mine mentioned was, um, life, universe and everything, um, which is, uh, in, um, Salt Lake city, uh, every year. And it's, um, it's actually a writer's symposium, um, so it's, it's much more geared towards like professional education for writers and, mm. um, and they do have like formal pitch sessions there and, um, and it's, it's a totally different vibe, but she found that to be incredibly useful for her, you know, both from a building her skills standpoint, but also, um, from a networking standpoint, because she was able to make connections through those formal sessions, um, that, you know, helped her career later on and stuff. So, yeah. um, so yeah, it's it's a matter of you know figure out who you are, figure out what you want, and then find the convention that matches you know those things and is going to give you the experience that you want. Or, and and that you're going to have fun doing it. Yeah, that, exactly. That's the other aspect of it that is important is is that you know we're rarely our best selves when we're upset or stressed about right. stuff. So if you're but we're more often going to be our best selves when we're having fun or enjoying ourselves. So right. uh, and having a crew or some friends that you can go with and and hang out with at these things is always a really big deal. Yeah. Um you know but uh it's it is also a uh, a time sum. It's something that you're going to sink a lot of time into and mm-hmm. it it doesn't you know it doesn't actually get anything written Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, a real uh, important factor to remember is, is that so, yeah, I'd love to go to all these conventions and do all these things and network and get all these people that, you know, together. But ultimately, you have to get your butt in the chair and you have to produce the product. Right. right. Um, so, uh, and sometimes it's necessary to go to conventions to have fun so you can actually get your butt in the chair and not be mm-hmm. depressed about how awful you are and mm-hmm. all the, the, the that flows from your fingertips is awful and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a, a caution as well. You need to make sure that it's something you're going to enjoy, but also that you're going to be able to uh, produce the product. Right. Right. Or, and if, you know, if not, then stop trying to be a writer and just be a fan. That's okay yeah. too. You yeah. know, totally. <laughs> you can. I promise you, you can have a great time that way as well. <laughs> yeah. But you know, one of the things that's really neat is to to be you know talking to other other people who you know. Again, I was talking earlier about how there was the relatively few people in my profession that that uh, my day job that are uh, ex- expose themselves as fans mm-hmm. of science fiction or or whatever it may be. So. To be in your own tribe, to be in amongst people that are thinking not only thinking like you or about uh, about things like you do, 
but are also successful at it is a mm-hmm. huge supercharge to me. Like I, you know, I'd, I'd come off of world fantasy usually, uh, and I'd write more in, in that month afterwards, November to December, I'd write more in that month than I usually write at any other time because I was juiced, you know, I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is cool. And, and, uh, there is some place I can go with this and, and be excited to, uh, you know, meet other people that are excited about the same things. I right. It's like kind of like a recharging of the batteries annually. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, and it's funny because Casey, you know, was going to Dragon Con as a fan. And I had said to myself, I really, really wanted to go to Dragon Con when I first learned about it. Hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm going to go the first time I'm a professional because another aspect of my day job is I don't really particularly like large crowds. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I'm going to need to be able to kind of get into green rooms or, you know, escape the, the, the press of humanity that mm. is, is dragon con. So, and it'd also be a reward to myself for finally getting, you know, pro status, mm. uh, is to be able to go. So, uh, that was kind of what I did, you know, from a, again, we both arrived at this place where we're, you know, starting our, our uh, writing, but we're also, we arrived at it from completely different ends of the conventions spectrum. Uh, and yet both were successful. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of cool that there are, there's so many different pathways to doing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So how, how do each of you manage like this is probably a fluid question just as much as your genre fluid right but like how do you manage getting into the chair because i imagine writing's not just about writing right it's we've got all these priorities going on and things to juggle and balance and a battery to keep recharged like like how do you stay in that flow and how do you decide what projects to work on so um for me, the project that I, the the project at the top of the list is the one for which I have a contract. And, you know, mm. if I have a contract for it, <laughs> um, and, and then I have a legal, legal obligation to produce. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the one that's at the top of the list. Um, but additionally, um, you know, making time to write is always a challenge, um, especially, um, you know, as Griffin said, we're both we're both parents. We both have, you know, demanding full-time day jobs, if you will. Um, in, and for both of us, I think, um, you know, our day job is sometimes actually a night job. Like for example, for me tonight, it's the reason I was able to stay up till 3 AM to do this recording is because I, you know, I flew earlier tonight. So, Mm. (laughs) um, uh, but it, um, so yeah, it, it is a challenge finding time to, you know, to put button chair and fingers on keyboards, if you will. However, um, one of the benefits of, you know, the training and, and the career and the mindset that, that goes along with that for me has been, mm. you know, it, I'm very comfortable with a sense of discipline and routine. And so if, if I can hold myself to a discipline of, and this is, this is just the mental trick that, that I use, and it's probably going to sound a little bit ridiculous, but for me, every single day, as long as I write a, a minimum word count of, and it's very low, um, um, then, then I'm, you know, I'm good to go as long as I do something every day. And that, that minimum word count right now for me is like, it's a hundred words. If I, you know, mm-hmm. there are days when I'm like, I'm exhausted. I just, you know, I 
had an early flight today and it was long and it was hot and, you know, blah, blah. So many reasons why I don't want to do anything. I feel drained. I feel like I'm not going to produce anything of quality, Mm. which is a a valid concern. But a hundred words is not that much. And so I will make myself sit down. I will make myself write at least a hundred words. And after I've broken a hundred words, if I Mm. still feel like quitting, I'm allowed to quit. No harm, Mm. no foul. I'm done for the day. How often does it happen that you only end up at a hundred versus you kind of stumble into the next 400? It's very rare, honestly, because, you know, a hundred words, that's like half a paragraph, you know, that's, that's three lines of dialogue maybe. So, (laughs) um, you know, and so it's, it's very common that it's actually, in fact, I can only think of really like maybe one time where I was like, okay, 101 and I'm out. You know, um, <laughs> because usually it's like, okay, I got to at least finish this thought. Um, now, when you ask me how much over that I get every day, that varies significantly. And um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I hate to make excuses, but I'll be honest with you, this past year with everything that's happened and everything that's going on, um, mm. my production has been down. And, and I think that's been the case for a lot of us who are right. creative people. Um, and so, you know, whereas before I would sit down and tell myself, you got to do a hundred and end up with a thousand. Now it's far more common that I I'd sit down and I tell myself, you got to do a hundred and I end up with like 400 or 500, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um, and this isn't, this isn't progress. stopping your, it's not stopping your career from, right. from manifesting, right? Right. Yeah. Forward progress is forward progress. And, um, and I, because I do have the day job, I am fortunate enough that, that I can, I can have periods of, of lesser productivity and, you know, my family can still eat. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that respect. Casey's yeah, also really, uh, you know, she's got um, skills when it comes to, you know, organizing her day, et cetera, and, and making sure that, uh, you know, cause one of the things that, that happened is my relationship with my wife suffered over the last couple of years. Cause I, as I pursued this dream, um, mm. I was absent quite a bit. Uh, to go to conventions, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it, it is easy to, it's an easy trap to, to let something else fall mm-hmm. uh, and let it not, uh, not uh, succeed. But, you know, the other, and the other aspect of that is, is that my day job can make people miserable. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it certainly contributed to some of my misery of myself. So the writing was an escape. So it was easier mm-hmm. to get, you know, go ahead and write. And it, the danger there is also that it's easier to write about or write something else than it is to communicate with your loved ones what mm. it is that's paining you. So it can contribute to some some issues uh, to keep an eye on. But uh, when it comes to actual like prioritizing what I'm going to work on, what I'm going to write, um, Casey and I both have a, a you know a strong team background. Like where we, you know, the, it's okay to fail, but you, you did, you better not fail because you didn't put in the time or the effort for right. someone else. Right. You don't want to let your so, team down. Yeah. And yeah. cause you know, that means that people get hurt mm-hmm. um, in our, in our day job. And then with the uh, writing, it's people get hurt because they don't want to work with you anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And your reputation suffers as a result. Mm-hmm. So I don't think either of us, I know I certainly have never written as fast or as um, with such like, yeah, I got to do this. I'm not going to, nothing's going to stop me doing this as I did for Second Chance Angel mm-hmm. with Casey. Because I, I knew, because the way we wrote it, the process by which we wrote it was, uh, you know, I wrote a chapter, she wrote a chapter. I wrote mm-hmm. a chapter, she wrote a chapter because they were constantly building on each other. So it was like, Oh, better not let her down. I want her to see this in the morning when she gets up so she can 
she can jump right on it with her limited free time. Because uh, we wrote this on spec. It wasn't like we had sold it before or anything like that. Um, I, lo- I love that way of writing. And people have told myself and my co-writer on the series that we are crazy for doing it that way. But, yeah, I think it, it contributes strongly, to, especially if you're somebody who wants to be precious or, or finds yourself being precious about writing time and that kind of thing. Yeah. Is that you know if you set that deadline, you got hey this is the time at which I've got to, um, I got to get done, uh, and then you have uh, an enforcer, which is your own you know predilection to not be that guy or right. gal who failed yeah. the the other partner. Um, it's a huge deal, and and um, yeah, like I said, this this came out. We finished this book, the principal writing for it, in less than six months. Nice, yeah. Um, so, it's not huge by any means, but it's, it is a complex novel with a lot of uh, threads going through it. Did you find that like for this to work, did, I don't know if you learned any lessons about like collaborating. Was there one person that kind of was the guardian or gatekeeper of the vision or like, or was it purely 50, 50 in terms of resolving where this is going and when things change direction, character, I, something expected. I, I really do think it was 50-50, and I think that that's unusual. Um, at least it's, it's um, so when we very first started this, we, we kind of we went about it a little bit bass-ackwards, um, you know, when we first started, because we, we, we started with a scene. Griffin sent me the link to a, the, a YouTube video um, of Scott Bradley's Postmodern Jukebox doing a cover of Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes mm. and fronted by this amazingly talented singer named Haley Reinhardt. Um, and um, he sent me the link to that, that song, that video, and said, this is the opening line to a noir novel. And I said, yeah, it is. Let's write this. And so then he sat down and wrote the scene as he saw it in his head and sent it to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's good here's what happens next. And so we sort of fell into the rhythm of, Hmm. you know, he'd send me something and then I'd send him something and then he'd send me something and then I'd send him something. And we got like the first couple of chapters down and then we kind of looked at it and we're like, all right, we, we need to be more organized with this. Like, (laughs) where are we going with this? And so then we stopped the writing, put the writing on hold Hmm. and hammered out an outline. And that was a, um, that was a highly collaborative process where, you know, we would do, because uh, I, I was living on the East Coast uh, of the United States at the time um, in Maryland, and then he was uh, in Northern California, and so um, not not quite the you know time zone difference that we're dealing with now, but mm. um, but still a significant time zone difference. And so uh, you know I'd put I'd put my daughter to bed, and then I'd get on a video call with Griffin, and we'd we'd go you know just scene by scene. Okay, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? You know, what happens next? How do we resolve this? How do we resolve that? And once we had the outline hammered out, then we had um, as well kind of a roadmap for who was going to write which scene because we, you know, we, we wrote, you know, there's, there's the two main point of view characters. I wrote one and he wrote the other. I wrote Angel okay. and he wrote Muck. Yeah. And so we knew whose point of view character was, you know, telling which chapter of the story. And so we would just, you know, we would write them and then, you know, email them back and forth or use Google Docs back and forth. And it, um, it's exactly, it happened exactly like he said, like I, I felt not only, not only a pressure to, to, you know, turn it quickly and get the ball back in his court, but Mm -hmm. also 
and excitement to do so because yeah. I wanted to see what he was going to do next. Mm. And, yeah. um, and so it wasn't like, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't like somebody standing over me being like, you know, Oh, you can't let your teammate down. Um, there, there was a feeling of, I didn't want to let my teammate down, but it was also, it was exciting. And, and in a certain sense, inspiring to me mm. to be able to, um, you know, because I wanted to find out what was going to happen next. I wanted to see, you know, I had to respond with angels so I could find out what Muck was going to do. Right. And one of the things that was, that was, you know, I called those, those phone calls about hashing out the outline and, and the world building uh, stuff as well was I call them one and two chill phone calls because mm-hmm. there was almost, yeah. it was almost like a weekly basis where we were on the, on that call and, and we would be noodling about what do we do? And then uh, Casey would make a suggestion or I'd make a suggestion and the other one would go, Ooh, and what about, <laughs> and, and yeah. kind of get, get goosed about, uh, you know, these, these opportunities and, and things we could do with the story that, uh, ultimately, you know, most of them were uh, incorporated into the novel, but we got we got kind of this constant infusion of excitement about you know just uh, it was like a writer's room I I would imagine or a, yeah. a really good writer's room where yeah. you're tossing ideas back and forth and you know some things we go oh no, let's let's put a pin in that let's think about think about that later um, and uh, other things we were just like we get so excited about we'd be like okay yeah cool I can, I can do something with that. But, and then when we had disagreements, it was like, okay, well, let's, let's figure out why it is that, that, you know, you're thinking that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we generally kind of, uh, were able to, uh, patch up any kind of disagreement we had. I don't really remember too many, Yeah, um, no. uh, but it was, you know, more, it was also more about encouraging one another. Cause you know, mm-hmm. we were, we had other things going on in our uh, lives and, and in our writing as well and our writing careers that we were like, okay, well, how do we, you know, and we could kind of work off each other for that as well mm-hmm. and uh, supporting one another. Like, you know, it's, it's really cool when you write that short story to get that feedback from, uh, from the editor after you send it in six mm-hmm. months ago, they tell you, no, we don't want it. Or, or yes, we love it. It's great. Yeah. yeah. You know, six months is really fast, right? <laughs> <laughs> whereas, whereas this, I would write a scene and send it to Casey and she's like, wow. Yeah. Right. And here's what I'm going to, here's how I'm going to tangle up with that. And, and, uh, I'm going to make this sing for, from my part. Mm-hmm. And two days later I, I get, wow. And I go to, I send it to her, you know, send what I've written and she goes, wow. And so it was really kind of very cool, yeah. uh, supportive, uh, thing mm-hmm. that was built into it that we were both constantly kind of excited by what the other person was doing. Right. Uh, and, you know, so long as it's not an echo chamber of, you know, you're both idiots and, and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> um, and you're just kind of cheerleading each other as you, you know, descend to the bottom, which I don't think we did. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a really cool mechanism uh, for getting shit done. Yeah. That was the, uh, That's awesome. So it was, yeah, it was really cool. I imagine it's wonderful to get that, that, instant feedback almost on what yes. you're writing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, and you know, it, it, it was, it was cool too, because it's like, so in, in other writing relationships where, um, you know, I've done collaborations, like I did a collaboration with, um, uh, John Ringo and Christopher Smith, who I mentioned earlier, um, mm. and, you know, called, uh, last, um, uh, it's the last judgments fire series. It's uh, called gunpowder numbers. And in that relationship, John was the senior author. 
Um, and then, you know, Chris and I are the junior authors and there's, you know, the, the power dynamic for lack of a better term is, is that's what it is. Um, one of the things that made this project so different and, and made this so cool on that both line of like immediate yeah. feedback. Yeah. Mm. Is that Griffin and I, we were both equally new, <laughs> you know what I mean? There was yeah. no, there was no senior author, junior author, dynamic there. It was, you know, we were both coming at this from a sense of we're creating something brand new from scratch. And, you know, you know, neither of us is, is, has more experience than the other in the business. Um, uh, you know, at the time Griffin had, uh, a novel out, um, but I had like, you know, more short stories out. And so it was, it, we were right at an equal level of development as mm -hmm. writers, if that makes sense. And, um, and the great thing is that we still are, we've continued to develop since finishing this project, but we've, we've developed a pace with one another. So, um, so that, I think made it really good to have, you know, for me, I know it was a, it was a huge boost to my creativity and to my energy to, you know, send him something and get that immediate positive feedback from someone whose opinion I respected, um, someone whose writing, you know, style I liked and whose, whose facility with words and certain things I really envied and someone that I could learn from. Um, but, but also someone who is, who is, you know, my peer. Um, mm. and I, I think that, that all of those factors really combined to make it a, um, just, just a great experience. Yep. So can't say it any better than she did. So, mm. <laughs> so a couple more questions. And I guess one of them for each of you is what's your like favorite thing about how second chance angel turned out? Uh, for me, it's going to be the noir feel. I, I think we, you know, I, I love the, I love the noir genre. I can't say that enough. Um, you know, I, that's the reason why I edited an anthology that focused on, you know, the femme fatale trope, you know, within science fiction and fantasy. Mm. Um, and Griffin and I set out to write a sci-fi noir novel and, um, and it, that's exactly what it, we did. It's not just a sci-fi novel with, you know, some fedoras and some, and some detectives thrown in it. It is, it is a legitimate noir mystery that mm. happens to be set in a sci-fi setting and contains a lot of the sci-fi, you know, sci-fi tropes and, and hallmarks as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I'm, I'm so happy with the overall feel of it and, and the, you know, the, uh, it's got the aesthetics, um, you know, in terms of the, the, the look and feel of the space station that we describe and the smells and, and all that mm. kind of stuff. Um, it sounds noir. It's yeah. I, I'm just, I'm very happy with how well we were able to channel into that. Um, you know, that was our rallying cry while writing. It was more, more noir. <laughs> you know? and, and, uh, and I think it worked out for us. Awesome. And Griffin, what about you? Um, that it's, that it actually, we took some risks with this. Uh, mm. It, you know, it's a subgenre of a genre of a subgenre. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we took some risks with our, uh, with the way we wrote it. Um, it has, it's two first person perspectives, mm -hmm. which is unusual, but, and then one of those first person perspectives is nested in the actual body of another one for much of the novel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, there's a risk there of uh, too much repetition, and we we walk that line uh, very well. And then uh, when we concluded the initial run through of the novel, there was a lot of gaps that were um, visible to us in the story because again, you're telling something from a first person perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a lot uh, that you can miss as far as just story opportunity, given that you only have the one perspective to tell it from, right? or the two in this case. So uh, we uh, took a risk and wrote uh, a, an entire uh, portion of the novel from, uh, first off, written in third person mm-hmm. to kind of socially distance the reader from the artificial intelligences, which... Uh, come into contact with uh, Angel in the story and slowly become more and more uh, sentient uh, in that they feel rather than so fonts where they think. Um, so we, that was a huge risk. And then that somebody bought it and then that they, uh, they hired Betsy Mitchell to edit it. And Betsy was like, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she got excited about it. And, uh, you know, we were both just, first off, it's, it's awesome when somebody, you know, puts enough faith in you to, to buy your book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an incredible experience to, to have that. And then to secondarily have one of the premier editors in the field mm-hmm. active today to go, wow, this is cool. <laughs> and here's how you're going to make it. Here's how you can make it better. Mm-hmm. And then accept your feedback or your your thoughts on how they said that you can make it feel better as if you were a peer mm-hmm. <laughs> was huge mm-hmm. uh, because it, it made us both feel, I think, um, certainly it made me feel as if I had, I was the professional that I'd wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it was huge that, that, that it actually exists in the world that somebody put their money behind it. The Blackstone Publishing, uh, that they not only did they put their money behind it, but they also put uh, some great talent behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover is, is phenomenal. Um, and he, uh, uh, Kurt Jones, the uh, uh, creator of that cover, mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, we sent him the same video that, that had kicked off the whole thing mm-hmm. for us, for mm-hmm. us. And he came back like within a week with the, a mock up of that cover. Yeah, he he immediately got our vision, uh, and and then went to the nines with it, you know, and just just really did an amazing job. And that that mock-up is without with only like two or three minor minor changes mm. is the cover that, that you see now. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it's a very eye-catching cover, et cetera. But again, to have everybody kind of jump in and together and uh, go on this ride with us was really really cool. Because yeah. the, well, the one thing you don't get, and we've talked about this already, you don't get much unqualified success in my day job, <laughs> and you don't get you don't get much in the way of uh, of immediate feedback or um, quality feedback from your peers while you're engaged in working on something because yeah. it's kind of that solitary thing or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> and so this was uh, the opposite of that experience on a number of levels. So mm. really cool. That's awesome. Well, for people who want to learn more about you and Second Chance Angel, how can they do so? Uh, well, you can uh, 
you can find out more about me at my website. Uh, it's www.kcezel.net. Um, and uh, on social media, I'm most active on Facebook. Um, I have mm -hmm. uh, my Facebook author page is Casey Ezel oddly enough. Um, and then, uh, also, uh, on, uh, Instagram, I'm, I'm getting more and more active on Instagram. Uh, my professional account is, uh, once again, Casey Ezel. So, uh, but yeah, if you go to my website, um, you can sign up for my mailing list. Um, I send out newsletters uh, roughly monthly, um, mm. you know, and that'll include some, uh, you know, updates and new releases. Um, and then just sort of some like, Hey, here's what's going on in my world. Here's a mm -hmm. cool picture of Japan. Um, but, um, more importantly, uh, there's two free short stories that you get when you sign up. So, mm. <laughs> so go get some free stories, sign up for my mailing okay. list. <laughs> and I'm, I'm available on, uh, on Facebook as well. Griffin Barber. Um, I'm also uh, griffinbarber.com, uh, all one word. Um, the, uh, Facebook, Twitter, I'm on Twitter occasionally, uh, under, uh, the ranting Griffin, uh, and mm -hmm. G-R-I-F-F-I-N. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, I'm also on Instagram, Griffin Barber, I think underscore author. Uh, but you'll, you'll be able to see the pictures of, uh, the different hawks and whatnot that have been, uh, in my neighborhood since the, uh, the teetering on the apocalypse of that we've been doing for the last year or so. Um, right. I've had some visitations from some cool birds in my uh, neighborhood. Um, and then looking but for also fiction, so, <laughs> Yes, I guess so. <laughs> so we've, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm available on that. I try to also respond to anybody, uh, um, you know, on Facebook that uh, has some uh, real inquiries about uh, law enforcement and that kind of thing for the purpose of writing. Um, so yeah, I'm available and out there on those uh, platforms. That's fantastic. Also, you can find our book, Second Chance Angel, on Amazon, and uh, you can find it in the better bookstores. You can also go out to Barnes & Noble and uh, kick them in the pants until they decide they're going to bring uh, mm -hmm. the book into the store. Uh, <laughs> yes, please do that. Please do that. If for no other reason, then you need to have a copy of this cover in your life because it is amazing. Well, and if you like sci-fi noir, there's oh, there's always room for a more new sci-fi noir on Absolutely. the bookshelf. Absolutely. And then the other thing too about this book, um, and we haven't really talked about it uh, much during this interview, but for the audiobook fans in your mm -hmm. audience, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you prefer consume your fiction via your ears. Um, mm -hmm. We were really, really fortunate to have some phenomenal talent um, engaged to create the audiobook version of this. Uh, we actually had three narrators, uh, one for Angel, one for Muck, and then one for the, um, the third-person AI perspective that Griffin mentioned earlier. So um, our, uh, our, narr our narrators are uh, Jennifer Jillariya, David Drummond, and uh, Natasha Studek. Mm. Um, and... Um, so, so good. I, I listened to the audiobook. I'm still in the, in the process of listening all the way through the audiobook. I haven't finished it yet, but you know, every, every single time I'm just, I'm blown away by how talented these narrators are and how, you know, well they brought these characters to life, you know? So. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a nice perk of having a publishing contract, right? <laughs> Yeah, sure, for sure. Well, well, and also with Blackstone in particular, because they they uh, started, I believe, as a an audiobook company, mm 
Mm. So they they have a deep and long reach when it comes to finding talent and securing that talent uh, for authors' work. That's yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. true. Well, Griffin and Casey, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on The Fearless Storyteller. It, thank you. It's, yeah, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.